0: Everybody. Welcome to another episode of Courtside with from and Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. As always, joined by my co-host and Hall of Famer, Steve Flink. We also have the pleasure of welcoming in this week, Amy Lundy. Amy has been featured on ESPN, CNN, and the Golf Channel. She's Director of Films at the Tennis Congress. Amy is also a contributor for Tennis Connected, and also co-hosts the podcast, Three, a Tennis Show with Joel Drucker and Gil Gross, also part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Amy, thanks so much for joining us in today.
1: Pleasure to be here. Very excited to talk about Monte Carlo.
0: So we're going to talk about plenty of Monte Carlo. But before we get into that, I want to know, Steve wants to know, we both want to know and the listeners want to know more about You, yourself, um, your tennis background, I do know you still play a little bit. Maybe you can talk about that a little and then also talk about how uh, this became your career.
1: So I was a general assignment sports reporter. I've done both print and television. I was your local sports anchor for a while. I did some work for ESPN Outside the Lines longer format, investigative work, all sports. In fact, I was trying to think of a sport that I haven't done a story on, and I, I came up with curling, but most of the others I've done. And then I took a few years off to have kids. I have two, girl and a boy. And when I came back into sports journalism, I just wanted to do tennis because it's the sport that I play and that I'm the most passionate about and that I really understand and so that's what I did. And I kind of um, jumped right into it and act like acted like i had been here the whole time <laughs> and uh, just started writing and, and doing stuff with tennis. Well,
0: thank you for sharing that. Both Steve and I are a big fan of, of your work and we see a lot of it across social media. Um, I guess let's just dive into it. There was a ton of tennis this week, a lot of long matches, a lot of interruptions with rain delays and whatnot. Um, no Carlos and no Rafa this week, but we did get Novak back. He lost to Musetti, Um, 6-4 in the third. A lot, again, a lot of breaks, a rain delays, just a weird match. Appeared like something was bothering Novak. Steve, you want to you want to lead us off? And, and what were your um, views of what Novak was all about, first time we've seen him in quite a while?
2: Yeah, well, obviously he'd had the five, six-week break, David, after Dubai. Uh, couldn't play in Indian Wells and Miami at I thought it might work in his favor this time because he could train longer on the clay and it wasn't that long a period of time and it wasn't comparable to last year when he'd gone through all the ruckus in Australia. So I thought it could work in his favor. He didn't play great in the first round, but I thought, okay, now he's going to play a guy he knows Musetti. He was down two sets to him at the French a couple of years ago and came back. I thought he'd be ready for it. It was very windy. And not cool, not great conditions for either. They both were breaking serve left and right. Novak lost the serve eight times and crossed the three sets. But he had a lead of a set and 4-2, and he could not. Uh, he really was unable to put the clamps down and close it out. The injury worry that what I think you're referring to, he wore a kind of a black sleeve on his arm above the elbow, which may raise concerns that perhaps it was a reemergence of elbow problems. But he was pretty dismissive of that in the press conference afterwards. Which was encouraging. Plus, he entered a 250 event this coming week, which tells tells me he clearly isn't worried about an, an injury. You wouldn't do that; you take the time off. But it, it looked cumbersome. It did not look comfortable to be playing with that, and he didn't serve anywhere near peak efficiency. He wasn't getting much on it. Nope, not good location, not good speed. Not, it, he was he was not on his game to be sure. And and you said he took full advantage of. And then, of course, he got clobbered by sinner in the next round
0: yeah amy what uh what do you think the first time we've seen novak for quite a while
1: i was surprised that he wasn't in better form the elbow situation notwithstanding carlos is not in the field rafa's not in the field and he this is his chance to really tune up for roland garros and take that thing and really cement his legacy um, especially with Rafa not being at a hundred percent and he just came out a little bit flat, but there's plenty of time. And if there's anybody who knows how to calibrate his preparation, it's Novak Djokovic.
0: Yeah, no, well said. And it'll be interesting to see what he does, you know, this coming week that Steve just referred to. And, and yeah, the other play. he really wants to at least, he may open up against Stan Babrinka, possibly
2: if Stan wins his opening rounder. And and it's not a strong feel. Otherwise he could potentially play Rublev in the finals, but I think he wants to at least be in the finals there and get those matches. And and Amy's right. There's plenty of time. There's Rome up ahead. There's Madrid. He'll, he'll get himself into peak form. But uh, I think this coming week will be, could be very helpful to him.
0: I'm glad you mentioned Stan Wawrinka because there was an interesting match early round in this tournament between him and Taylor Fritz and Steve, you and I had a little, Um, conversation about this match. I thought that match was tricky for Taylor because it was going to be his first real match on clay, right? For the clay court season, Stan has started to play a lot better. I thought Stan was going to that. I I thought Stan was going to win in two very, very tight sets. The first set was seven, six. What was it? 12, 10 in the breaker. I'm looking at my notes now. I think it was 12, 10 in the breaker. Each had a lot of chance. There was some good tennis. I think Stan actually, hit an out ball on set point. It was a passing shot down the line by Taylor that I thought would maybe drop wide um, after Taylor got the uh, win in the tiebreaker. He then won the second set, 6-2. Taylor is having a nice run, and I know he lost in the semis here, but we've seen him a whisker away from being the semis in Wimbledon. We know he plays well on hard courts. He wants to do better at the U.S. Open, obviously, but we know he's won Indian Wells, Masters 1,000, and Clay, he had a nice run here. I'll ask Steve and then Amy, you know, you, you can add on as well. What does Taylor have to do? Cause he's right there, Steve, but I don't think he's there yet, but he's so close. What is the one thing that he has to keep doing? And maybe it's just improvement a little by little because that's what he's been doing. We all know he's got a great team around him. Michael Russell's doing a great job there. Paul Anacone is overseeing it as well. Um, he's almost there, but not quite yet. Right, Steve? Yeah,
2: I mean, I don't think you can pinpoint this one thing. Listen, he beat Sitsapasa, was going for three Monte Carlo crowns in a row, played one of his best matches of the year and beat him two and four, started off the match by winning 16 of the first 22 points and just moved on from there. Good, impressive. Then he had to play Rublev, again, under very difficult conditions. He'd won the last few times against Rublev, and it was a hard-fought, pretty high-quality contest, a little uneven. But so he loses that in three sets. And then, of course, Rublev wins the tournament. No, I think Taylor is on course. He, he, on the hard courts, he lost those matches in, in the Sunshine Double. He lost to Sinner and Alcaraz, which is no disgrace. Now he makes the semis here and it's, builds his confidence on clay. I don't think it's any one shot or any one thing he needs to do. He needs to keep on keeping on. And, and that's what exactly what he is doing.
0: I can't believe that match, Amy, with Pass was so one-sided. Not that Taylor won, but the scores in that which he did win, 6-2, 6-4, um, I did not see that coming.
1: I think Taylor is elite now. He is proving that his strokes and his game holds up really on any surface. Uh, Interesting that you mentioned Michael Russell because I'll just tell you a quick story. I got a chance to work with Michael Russell on a video production a few years ago. And it was one of these things where we were shooting these videos with these coaches. Um, I did maybe seven or eight that day and I did maybe 20 or 25 the entire weekend of all the coaches. Michael was the most prepared. I mean, by a country mile. And I think that's what he's probably bringing to Taylor because a few years ago if you'd asked me if Taylor would be on this trajectory, I would have said no because he's a gamer, you know, he likes video games. He he's come from a life of privilege so he hasn't really had a lot of hardship where you know, he had to fight and claw to get everything. And yet um, he has really put his head down and continued to improve his game. And I think um, Russell is probably teaching him the value of preparation. But I noticed um, in the match with Rublev that... Rublev's technique was holding up better in the longer rallies, and that Taylor was going to the bailout shot just a little bit sooner. And, and on clay, um, that's going to have, you know, a cumulative effect. So perhaps just a hair better on the conditioning, conditioning specific for the surface, and, and um, maybe a little bit more at the net. And um, then he's, you know, the five tool player, as they say in baseball.
0: What a weird first set! What a weird first set, Steve, in that match. Was there seven breaks? Yeah, I think and, there were between. I think there was a total of seven breaks. You well, just, it was, it was nice.
2: crazy. It was similar to to the Djokovic match uh, it, it, with Musetti. Tons of breaks. Actually, Taylor lost his serve eight times in three sets. So, in addition, so in addition to what Amy's talking about, where maybe he could have been a little more patient in the rallies. Although it was a, it was his aggression that got him back past Stepanos. He, he was pulling the trigger, as he put it, in that match and connecting. Not so much in this match in really terrible conditions, but I think he was most disappointed in, in his serve, and it just was not a server's court or a server's day.
0: What about the strange one? And I know for the listeners, we're kind of all over, but we're just hitting some highlights. There was so much tennis during the week. What about the match between Medvedev and Zverev? And I, and I think... The length of that match hurt Medvedev when he played Runa the next day. But the Medvedev-Zverev match, Medvedev went 7-6 in the third. Zverev had two match points. I think he also served for the match twice. Um, you remember when he played Rafa at the French Open before he really hurt his ankle really bad. I mean, he's been playing well on clay. He didn't cross the finish line in this match, but that was a that was a wacky match as well.
2: Oh, it it was bizarre. I mean, yes, he did serve for it twice. The first time, 5-4 in the second set. So he's on the doorstep to win in straight sets. Not only does he lose his serve there, he loses it again at 5-6 and the set's gone. And then they go to the third and he's serving for it again at 5-4. In the two games, David, that he served for the match, he won one point in the two games. One. Then then despite all that, he comes from 5-2 down in the tiebreak. To go up 6-5, and then later had a second match point. One match point on his serve, one on Medvedev's serve, and he couldn't get it done. And then, of course, we had the the little controversy afterwards, the the hurling of accusations at each other, with (laughs) with, of course uh, Sasha complaining that 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 Medvedev is the worst sport of them all, and then Medvedev says that Sasha should look at himself in the mirror and. We don't have too many of these moments occur, but I think that what was emerging there was Sasha's frustration. He had just, the last time he played him on the hard courts, he had had so many opportunities and, and lost 7-5 in the third and let three love-40 opportunities get away. And this was even more agonizing for him because he was just so close. He could taste it. So that, But that was that was the most dramatic, compelling match of the week by far. But you're right. It, it, it was debilitating for
0: Medvedev. It ended late. It he ended very late. That's how I was going to ask Amy, like he did not have time to recover for that next no. match against Holger.
1: It's amazing how much of an impact that has these days on these guys. I mean, you can almost predict uh, with pretty high certainty that if somebody has a match like that, if he doesn't go down in the next round, it'll it'll catch up to him eventually what i found interesting other than the the spiciness of it and um the, the other thing that's come out after is that um in a couple of uh, acceptance speeches or concession speeches when the two of them have met in a final zverev has made reference to the fact that they've always been friends yeah and medvedev said nope nope we haven't always been friends so this is getting this is getting good which which i I don't mind, by the way, tennis needs a little bit of spiciness sometimes, but What was really interesting to me is that clay is a it's a slower surface where uh, power servers are supposed to be that's supposed to be mitigated a little bit or the edge is supposed to be taken off the power of the serve. And in a few matches that I saw this tournament, including that one Medvedev versus Verov, the guy who could not make a first serve when he really needed it was punished. So um, there's still real value in making a first serve in tight spots. Hey, no,
0: David,
2: well yeah. I couldn't agree more with what Amy's saying. I just want to add one thing. Paul Garuna played very well against Medvedev. And Medvedev made an interesting comment, Amy, after the mat, before the match, where he said that he had practiced. they never played official match. But he said, I practiced with him a lot of times, and I've never beaten him. And I hope I can show my good tennis tomorrow. So that couldn't have helped in the back of his mind either, that he, felt he, he had struggled in practice. Not that there's not a huge difference between a practice matches and, and official competition, but I, it was interesting that Medvedev would bring that up. But I didn't think he played that poorly. He just was a little sluggish. And Runa played awfully well that day. And uh, he just was much better from the baseline, located his serve well, and picked Medvedev apart. And uh, I, I think we got to give
0: him the credit for that. And then you go talk about the semis. We've already talked about the first one that was played, Rublev and Fritz. You had Sinner versus Runa. Um, rain delays finished very late. So, again, Runa gets through that match, 1-6, 7-5, 7-5. But now he has the late match. He has to go try to recover for the final. Um, we talked Rublev and Fritz. I'll pass it on to either of you. Any talk about the Sinner versus Runa match? It was, uh, like I said, 1-6, Seven five seven five, and it took forever because of delays and whatnot.
2: Well, I think it was the highest quality contest of the week, in my view, a higher standard than, say, Medvedev's era, which was also extraordinary. I would put this even on a higher level, but it was another disappointment for Sinner in the sense that he's he's been so consistent, but he lost a final to to Medvedev, he's lost a couple of finals to to Medvedev this year, and and he lost to Carlos and Indian Wells, beat him in Miami, but. He's looking for that kind of breakthrough triumph that could lead him toward a major. And here he blitzed with the first set, went down a break in the second, then there's a rain delay, but he came back after the return from two, five love 30, all the way back to five all saving a couple of set points and still lost the set. I think that was bruising. And yet the third set was terrific and just came down to the one break at the very end, seven, five for Runa. So it was a very enjoyable match to watch, but I'm sure, You could see that look on Sinner's face when they went up to shake hands. Partially, I think he had a certain distaste for Runa's behavior as they all they all have problems. He's a very precocious kid and contentious. And, you know, he's not the most popular guy out there. But part of it. So part of it was his opponent's behavior. And the other part was just the disappointment of not being able to get into this final. And because I think he felt after Indian Wells and Miami that maybe he was ready to to win a one thousand
1: a real contrast in personality there, which, again, I think is good for tennis. Uh, Sinner really had the hometown crowd behind him in that match. It was rowdy, and they were, you know, cheering every single point like it was a grand slam. So, uh, again, it was a very enjoyable match. I enjoyed it. I just had the sense that in the final arguments of the match, that's when Runa started started to assert himself and hit his particularly the forehand with real commitment. Um, and that's what gave him the edge. But I agree with you. That was probably the match of the tournament.
0: So we have Sunday morning, right? It just finished Sunday morning in the States. It finished a couple hours ago. We're recording this Sunday afternoon. Holger Runa versus Andre Rublev. Rublev wins five, seven, six, two, seven, five. After being down a break in the third Runa double faulted a game away at five all in the third, uh, Rublev wins his first masters 1000. I thought Runa did okay for finishing such a long day yesterday. He had his chances in the match. I mean, shoot, he was up four, one in the third. I'll leave it to you too. Amy, why don't you lead us off?
1: I'm not sure what happened. It didn't seem like classic cramping and he did call for the trainer at some point. Um, Was he tired? He didn't seem tired, you know, or particularly gassed. Um, Was there a mental block because he lost famously to Rublev uh, at the Australian Open earlier in in a five set, you know, amazing match. So, you know, was it just uh, being able to see the finish line and not being able to close, you know, quite in this moment? I'm not really sure. What do you think, Steve?
2: I, it's a good assessment. I agree with you because the announcers, they talked a lot about it in, afterwards to Andy Roddick in the Tennis Channel post-match uh, studio. They, they seemed to think it was cramps, the onset okay. of cramps. But I agree with you. It wasn't so obvious. It wasn't the typical player writhing and barely able to move between points. He seemed okay that way. So it, it was a bit of a mystery, but obviously something was bothering him. On the other hand, David, he got uh, he put himself in a great position because he obviously he'd won the first set. And then and then uh, Rublev ran off the last four games of the second set to win it comfortably 6-2. And then in that third set, it was not only 4-1 for Runa, but he had a break point for 5-1 and he missed a block return. Barely, you could see the anguish when he missed that because he wanted that second break. He wanted to know that he, you know, that would have probably put him across the finish line. And then, and then they go back then, then we've so carried over into the next game because at four, two, he served two double faults on his way to the love 40 deficit got broken on a miss back in down the line. And then eventually at five all. you, that's where you saw Amy, the sense of something being a little off or wrong, not necessarily the classic cramps, as you said, but something because Uh, David, he threw up Rublev wisely threw up a couple of high defensive lobs and on the first two points and Runa missed smashes on both two overhead misses in a row. After the second one, he whacked a ball in the crowd and got, got a, 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 you know, warned or penalized for ball abuse. And the crowd started getting on him and he tried to egg them on as, as if to say, bring it on. And then he got broken. Uh, you know, and it, it was a tough stretch. It was a tough stretch because then he got broken on a double fold at five all. And then, then Rublev served it out. So he, something was going on there, but it wasn't entirely clear. As Amy pointed out, whether this was just classic cramps, or he was worried it was going to happen. He's a very high strung guy. He's always on edge and it caught up to him today. And maybe it was a carryover from a very physical grueling match against Sinner. Uh, last night, uh, uh, possibly a care nonetheless, smart, impressive performance from Rublev who really competed well. And he, at this point, David strikes me as a more solid player than he's ever been before. I used to think you could get to the backhand. I don't, it's not so easy anymore. And he has that thundering forehand and he's, and he stays in there. Even after he lets loose with some rage at himself, he bounces right back. And, and again, two things, Yesterday, he served for the first set against Brits and didn't close it out, but came back strong to win in three. Today, he loses a hard-fought first set after breaking back and gets it to 5 all, and still comes back very strong again. So all credit to Rublev for winning his first Masters 1000 after losing twice in the finals a couple of years ago.
0: That's true. And, I, you know, before we go and kind of talk about what's ahead as we continue our lead up, Roland Garros, there's still so much tennis to be played before we even get to that point. Um, Two names I want to bring up, Dominic Thiem and Andy Murray. Dominic Thiem, we're slowly starting to see him play a little bit better. He beat Richard Gasquet in the first round, then he loses to Holger Runa. No shame in that, but we're starting to see, and even talking to him, he's starting to speak with a little bit more confidence that he's starting to feel the ball a little bit better, starting to get on that upswing. Be interesting to see what he does leading up to Roland Garros, and then Andy Murray. He plays Alex De Minaur in the first round. I mean, that's going to be a tough match, no matter what. But the interesting, the interesting thing about that match was the post-match conference, the, the post-match quotes from Andy because he he got destroyed pretty. I mean, let's be honest, he got he got destroyed pretty good, six one six three. And we all know how much Andy is uh, put in the work you remember Alex and Andy playing that labor cup match that I think just ended yesterday. It took so long. Um, But uh, we, we know Andy was frustrated um, with that, with that route. I'll kind of give it to both of you, Amy, why don't you lead us off? um, Talk about Andy and then talk about Dominic team.
1: I think the real question for Andy Murray at this stage in his career is what to do about this clay season. Is it something that's going to benefit him going into grass, or is it going to be deleterious for him? And the way that he's playing now, if he was, you know, grinding before, uh, he's really grinding now. And I just, he's either going to lose super early in a lot of these clay court tournaments and not get many reps anyway, or he's going to, you know, possibly show up at, at grass season injured. So, um, I know before that he has skipped large portions of clay season. So I'll be interesting to see what he does interested to see how he proceeds from here in terms Mm -hmm. of Dominic team. Very fascinated by some of his comments about the wrist and how he now thinks he knows what he did or why he injured it. And it was because after he won the US Open. He says he just didn't have as much motivation or he had a letdown and therefore was not practicing as hard and then went out and tried to suddenly ramp it up and the the risk could not take it. Um, you know, from my perspective, he went a few years where he was just playing more than anyone else on tour. I mean, he was grinding himself to a pulp. So it's interesting that his answer to all this is always work harder, not, not less. Um, but I would love to see him back. And especially on this surface, because there have been so many classic matches in recent years with Dominic Team on clay.
0: Yeah, and he was Rafa's most formidable opponent
1: yeah. for about
0: two, three years in a row before the injury. Steve, what are your thoughts on both Andy Murray and Dominic Team?
2: Yeah, just a brief addition to what you said. He also gave Roger a lot of trouble. He gave Novak a couple of times in the year-end championships. The team was really emerging in a substantial way. And I, so I, I largely see it the way Amy does it. It's fascinating to see where he goes from here, David. I did feel I am a bit concerned because we saw some good form from him last fall. I think he was getting on a pretty good roll over the autumn, ending the year pretty strong. Didn't start this year well, but now, now there's a a chance with a bunch of clay court tournaments coming up. I hope he can make at least one strong showing prior to Roland Garros, so he goes in there with some belief, so that he can make a run at Roland Garros. And I suspect that might happen because he didn't play badly at all in that match, as you mentioned. And so this was no disgrace; he just beaten by a better player. But I feel like he's he's definitely on his way on the clay, and he's feeling pretty good about himself and. I, I want to see him I want to see him really make a dent in Paris and I suspect he will.
0: So here's the deal. I in my opinion, I, I think it's such a grinding surface, Clay, right? And there's so much tennis up leading up to Roland Garros. I think you really have to manage your schedule, especially for the top players who are going deep week in and week out. And these I think the clay schedule may be a little bit too long, but it doesn't necessarily have to be if you schedule it. Um the most strategic way that gives you the best chance in Roland Garros. Um, we all, we, we just know that Rafa's not playing Barcelona. He said he's still not ready. So he's not playing this coming week. We do have Carlos playing it. Um, Steve, you referred to Novak earlier. What are your kind of themes or trends that you'd like to see as we continue our buildup to Roland Garros? Amy, I'll start with you.
1: Well, I've said this on a couple of podcasts, including my own. I have a source that talked directly to Rafa a couple of weeks ago and he's not, his body's not feeling great right now. So it would not shock me if he did not play Madrid. Um, To be honest, it wouldn't even shock me if um, he didn't play Roland Garros, Uh, but we've heard this from Rafa before, not feeling well, you know, I've got injuries and then he goes in and he wins Roland Garros. I I did a study once on which tournaments he would win and which he wouldn't. And if he had to miss clay and, and, and the study, the result was that, um, it really didn't matter how many clay tournaments, whether he could only play one or he ran the table. He was still just as apt to win Roland Garros
2: absolutely right i mean let's look at let's look at recent recent tournaments there david i mean when when rafa won it in 2020 he didn't come to the u.s open of course the french was thrown into the autumn plays one loses loses to schwartzman in rome and and they're playing in cooler conditions which he says he hates Mm -hmm. you know i want the hot sun i want the typical he, he was not optimistic going in. he blitzed through the field and won that and then last year, he had a terrible time with the injuries and the rib injury in Indian Wells and didn't have good clay court preparation, left the court in Roma against Shapovala, kind of despondent, then had to get injections every day during the Roland Garros. And he had another brilliant tournament where he beat Djokovic in the quarters after surviving a five-setter with Felix. And he, and he went was a little lucky that Zarev got hurt, but still he was playing well and he'd won the first set there. And he blitzes rude in the finals so what can you really say I think the point being get back to what Amy said David is that at one time Rafa when he was younger was was adamant that he had to have these matches and he had to right. have the right as he's gotten older he's adjusted his thinking and re- that's why I think in the end I suspect he'll play Roland Garros even if he still feels like he's very physically subpar because he'll want to give it a shot knowing there are not that many more left and feeling like maybe things improve over the course of the tournament. I hope I'm not being overly optimistic because Amy mentioned her source. And based on that, it's like, okay, you know, I, I, I agree. Good chance. He plays nothing going in, but I still, I, I kind of hope he gives it a, gives himself the opportunity.
0: And, and Amy, I want to ask you, cause Steve and I have discussed it and we want to hear what you have to think about this, you know, when Carlos Alcaraz Alcaraz arrived on scene, everyone's like, this guy's going to be an animal on clay, right? He's unbelievable. And we've seen, he's played well on clay, right? But then you look at what he's done on his hard court court season. He's won three in his career. He's won three, arguably the biggest hard court events there are, Sands Australia, right? But we're talking US Open, Miami, and Indian Wells. He has won more clay court events than hard court events, but I mean, you see what he's doing on a hard court. Steve had a great quote we put out a few weeks ago is that if he's great in a paper, he gives Carlos a 95 on clay and a 97% on hard court. <laughs> um, how do you, how do you see Carlos? And if Rafa is not healthy or doesn't play that Carlos Novak potential semi or final, maybe would be crazy, crazy.
1: But how is he on grass that's a come back <laughs> circle back and um, I it's funny I wrote something is is Carlos better hardcore player or a clay court player back in February, and I think the final analysis my idea after looking over everything was clay, but then he won Indian well so if I had to write the same article again today I'd probably say uh, hardcore. Um, I'm just excited to see him back. And I, I think that he's, you never know what he's going to do. You don't know if he's going to drop shot. Uh, you really don't know on clay and uh, you don't know if he's going to approach or if he's going to stay back and just hit the living daylights out of the ball. So, um, I, right now for me, he's the most exciting player on tour and I'm especially excited that he's going to be in the field coming up.
0: Steve, any final thoughts before we sign off?
1: Well, I think
2: my concern on Carlos is that, is that obviously there's been a lot of injuries, and it's been a very disruptive time going back to last November uh, and missing the year end championships and the difficulties he's had since, and then having to pull out of Monte Carlo. I hope that was largely precautionary. I hope that we see him healthy in Barcelona, and if, if so, I, I, I think it's it, – It'll be a fascinating road to Roland Garros. And I gets back to your original point, David, the good news is that Djokovic and Alcaraz are gonna probably be swapping back and forth or staying in these one and two slots, one and two in the world. So that potentially if they were to meet in any of these events and at Roland Garros, it would be a final. And that's exactly the way it should be right now. And we need to see that rivalry develop. They had a great match last year, the Carlos won on the clay. Uh, went right down to the wire. And I I think they could have some more like that if we get the opportunity to see it during this clay court campaign.
0: I think all tennis fans would agree with that, Steve. And uh, with that, Amy, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Steve and I are big fans of uh, of all the work that you do. We see it across social media. If you haven't followed Amy already, make sure you do. Um, Thanks for joining us. This was a lot of
1: fun. Thank you so much for having me. Love the discussion. We'll talk soon. Thanks again.